You came from the Soviet Union. When 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 did you uh, when did you come to America? Well, I came to America in 1979. Okay. Uh, actually, I remember the date. I think everybody who comes to America to become American, uh, like myself, would tell you to the day, if not an hour, when they first on U.S. soil. For me, that was September 5th. September 5th? Yep. Uh-huh. Uh, that's my, like, second birthday. <laughs> wow. Welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damon Ossifer, your host, Paul Frederick. And welcome to Saturnian Sessions. And tonight, my guest is Igor from Biocarbon 13, which is a industrial band from uh, where are you? Chicago. Yes, we're in Chicago. Yeah, cool. So, um, so, so, hey, tell me about the band. Tell me what's going on. What's what's it all about? Oh, uh, first of all, hello, everybody. Hi there. Uh, uh, we've been around for a, um, for a short minute, maybe uh, 10 years or so. Uh, went through a lot of different changes, uh, growing pains, and now we're growing what we are now. Um, our next uh, shows we're preparing to do a little Midwest mini tour uh, with uh, Wolf Band. Gonna play um, um, Sanctuary Festival North in Milwaukee, South in Chicago, and then we're gonna go visit uh, uh, Ohio. Uh, gonna visit our friends over there. So this will be fun. So. Uh, if you're in these cities, hope to see you soon. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. You got a little Midwest, uh, Great Lakes area tour thing going on. So we'll, uh, put the, I'll, I'll be sure and put the dates up for that, um, on the show notes for this episode. So people in the area can, can check it out. I will share with you the links to, uh, our website where you can get our, uh, schedule. Awesome. Yeah, so, um, so I guess I'll uh, talk a little bit about why you and I know each other. Uh, I'm trying to think <laughs> about when we met, and I believe you can correct me if I'm wrong. I believe that you and I met uh, maybe 2006 or 2007 uh, when I was playing um, electronic percussion for the band Red Flag. And we played a show in Chicago, and, yep, yep. and you were there. And I think you interviewed. I think you interviewed us, right? Or mainly, you were interviewing uh, Chris, right? Chris Reynolds. I, uh, I, you know, it's been so long ago. I vaguely remember the interview, but I remember that 
um, the, uh, you and uh, uh, Chris and the entire band stand outside of the venue, and we were just talking and talking and talking yeah. forever. <laughs> Have you, by the any uh, chance, heard from any of those boys? No, uh-uh. So, so my 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 short my short life with Red Flag went. Um, I mean, we met you there in Chicago. We were doing this little mini tour thing. And I only got, you know, he was like, I mean, I'm sure you know the story. Like, his brother died, and then he re resurrected uh, yeah. Red Flag. Um, and, and you know, they had a pretty good cult following, a lot of people, because, you know, like, like 1989 or whenever it was when they did uh, Russian radio, um, they still had a lot of, uh, you know, fans from that. So he got my my friend Kirk, who was in the band Phase Theory, and I worked with him occasionally. He lived in Hollywood at the time, and had somehow mm -hmm. met. He ran into Chris Reynolds at a club or something like that. And Chris was like, "I'm going to go on on this tour, and I need people to. I need a band." And so, um, and and so Kirk was going to play keyboards, and uh, he got me in to like uh, do like trigger pads, and so we ended up. We did that Chicago thing, and then and then we there was a couple of other gigs at like Kansas City or something, I think. And then we went out to California, and then right after that we went to Moscow. Oh. Yeah, right. So that's what's interesting about this whole thing is 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 that it ended up with, you know, we met you, and you were talking about like you know how you'd come from Russia and stuff, and then we ended up like going over there, and that was my whole ex that was my my big. That that was a year of experiencing, uh, you know, Russia basically, and then um, shortly after that, we did a uh, we played on that goth cruise thing yeah. that that happens, yeah, and uh, with um, with um, oh god, I'm gonna forget the name of it. Who's the band that does a uh, this shit will fuck you up? Combi Christ. Oh, Combi. Oh, uh, yes. Combi Christ, Christ. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we went on the uh, goth, uh, the gothic cruise with Combi Christ, and then uh, and that was it. After that, um, Chris kind of like didn't I he do didn't do anything <laughs> for a while, and and uh, so I don't know what's happened to him. I lost touch with him, so I don't know what he's doing. Well, uh, you know uh, that's why we're doing these interviews because most people don't get the pleasure to meet an artist or performers and you know face to face and such. Um, situation, social interaction like we had. And I do have to say, this guy, Chris, very shy, but he is awesome. He's nicest guy you ever want to meet, nicest guys you want to talk to, and very, you know, he's not flighty, very business-like. Mm -hmm. you, you, can, you can take him at his word. Yeah. So I, I, I that's why I ask about him, and because uh, people like that, I like to keep around. Uh -huh. So I hope that he will service and in some form, uh, and uh, because he's a very good artist in his right, and besides that, nicest guy. Uh huh. That one of the nicest guys that I met. The entire band was great. Yeah, no, he was. Uh, and, he, he was. It's 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 like getting to work with him, even for a little while, um, was a real treat because of his attitude and his experience. I mean, he has this like mm -hmm. experience of like, 
you know, late late 80s, early 90s when they were 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 hot, you know, of like, you know, he had lots of experience uh, from media. You can tell all kinds of stories about, you know, the other like, you know, synth pop bands and stuff that were around at the time that they'd like do shows with and stuff. Um, and so, yeah, it was a real treat, like getting to work with him. He's just a really intense, intense individual. As a side note, in the Gossip Cruise lineup, Red Flag and uh, Combi Christ, that's pretty esoteric. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how do you follow that? <laughs> yeah. No, it was, it was, it was definitely like, uh, it was pretty wild. Um, and then when we, when we played in, in Moscow, we played with, uh, clan of Zymox. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right. Well, that, that's a better match. Yeah. But incidentally, I, I have met Rani before. Yeah. I was in Amsterdam. We have a mutual friend who does his sound. Also really, really good guy. And uh, that's a business oriented dude i mean that guy is nothing but the business yeah it's pretty professional no he's very cool so it was weird it's like i i remember i met uh, how did i run into so i actually met the rudy at the wave gothic treffen festival because in between all of this somehow i went to the wave gothic treffen festival in leipzig germany and I saw him there. He was just hanging out. And I'm like, oh, hi, how's it going? I, I know you. You're in um, Clan of Zymox. And, and we talked for a minute. And then and then, that's, then the Moscow thing happened a few months later. So then I saw him there, like, backstage. So it was just a weird – that whole 2006 to, I don't know, 2007, like, time period was just really weird. It's just a long string of, like, connecting with uh, really interesting people. And then you started coming back. I was doing – like my industrial band, uh, Asmodeus X, which I was doing more about then. Band. Right, we connected Big on that. Band. And you did this uh, awesome uh, compilation. Yeah. Negative Impact. This is, uh, this is volume three of it. I think, I, I think we did another one, though, too, with you. You did, like, I think we were on volume yeah. two, maybe. Yeah. But, um, but these were awesome, too. Did, I mean, did you do volume four? I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. All right. But incidentally, uh, the, the guy who did uh, this uh, album cover actually uh, created our album cover for my latest uh, release. Oh, not my, my current mm-hmm. latest release. The, the ne- uh, Nexus. Nexus. Yeah, so, that song we're going to be playing later on. Yeah. So ne- Nexus is the new album. And um, we're going to be hearing the song Western at the end of all this. Yeah, just released this February, so it's uh, uh, pretty warm. Cool. <laughs> right out of, freshly baked, right out of the oven. Cool. Well, how do, you, how do you feel about it? Do you feel it's your, uh, is it the best work yet? Don't you feel the same way? Whenever you release the latest stuff, it's like the best thing you ever did. Uh-huh. At least that's how I feel, you know, like whatever was before it was bad with shit. Yeah. This is the greatest. Yeah. So that's how I feel about it. But I think that we uh, also in this album, uh, we took a, a slightly different direction. We took some um, synth wave influences um, back of the 80s and 
meshed it with some industrial stuff and kind of made a whole new thing. Yeah. So I think you will hear a lot of 80s influences in, in that, uh, in that uh, whole collection. That's awesome. I mean, that sounds like totally congruent with it. Like your stuff reminds me, I, I have thoughts of uh, um, like Nitzareb. Uh, sometimes your vocals sound like uh, Skinny Puppy to me. You know, like really? uh, right, yeah, like ogre, like really old stuff with ogre. You know, when when ogre's like more kind of when he's not like doing so much the harsh demonic voice, but doing mm-hmm. more the when he's like you know kind of like trying you know hitting notes and stuff like that. Um, sometimes you kind of remind me of that. Um, well, yeah. those uh, are very flattering uh, uh, comparisons, and uh, Nitzarab and the whole um, early eighties box truck Chicago. That whole era was like huge influence on me. Yeah. Uh, you know, just like, you know, it was uh, like another epiphany. Yeah. Like earlier I had an epiphany when I heard Bauhaus uh-huh. and uh, Passion of Lovers. Yeah. And I discovered what was called Death Rock back then. Now it's called Goth for uh-huh. some reason. But it was Death Rock. <clears throat> it was punk with lipstick. Yeah. And then I, years later, I heard um, um, uh uh, what was that? Mind is the terrible thing to taste. Yeah, uh, ministry. Ministry. Yeah. yeah, and and then the whole watch strikes. That was another another epiphany. It's you know major influences. Yeah, um, on me. No, I can I can so, identify yeah. with all of those. I can identify with all those influences. Same thing for me. Bauhaus. Um, and I heard that when I was like, I was like maybe fifteen years old. I was in high school. Um, you know, the first time I made it to second base with a chick, I was listening to press the eject and give me the tape. Bella Lugosi's <laughs> dead, right? Bella Lugosi's dead is the ultimate, like, uh, make out music, you know, uh, if you're a 15 year old goth. Um, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. 100%. And then, like, when that, uh, when ministry. Passion of Lovers. <laughs> oh, yeah. Passion of Lovers. Totally. Yep. Yeah, uh, great, great makeout song uh, for for Generation X for sure. Um, oh. <laughs> and then yeah. um, the um, Ministry, like the mind is a terrible thing to taste. When that was out, when, when did that come out? Was that like nineteen eighty eight or something? Eighty nine? Maybe, maybe. I uh, don't ask me. My my memory is horrible. I don't remember yeah. things like that. I don't remember good. I don't remember bad. I don't remember who I owe money. So it's good to borrow money from me. I don't remember. <laughs> don't yeah. tell anyone. <laughs> right. Uh, everyone knows now. People are going to be hitting you up. People are going to be hitting you up. Um, yeah. <laughs> Happens. But yeah. Uh, so were you in... Um, were you in Chicago then? Like in the, like in the early 90s? Well, I... I uh, actually, I moved to Chicago in '95. Uh, okay, but uh, early '90s, uh, late '80s, I spent in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, uh, okay. Like yeah. the wall. Yeah. Started the ballroom. It was it was my hangout. I saw um, Nine Inch Nails their first tour. Oh in wow! Started the ball over the, over there. Oh wow! It was. Pretty incredible show. Wow. Uh, there was a rope swinging from the stage and uh, um, 
uh, God, what's his name, was swinging on this rope. I thought that he going to break his neck. Uh, Trent, Trent was swinging on this rope. Oh, wow. He was still having a long hair and was skinny as a rail and well, so was I. But wow. <laughs> that's pretty incredible show. Wow. That's intense. Yeah, so, I mean, I saw, uh, get back to ministry, you know, he's like touring again. And I saw yeah. him, they came through Houston. We saw him like last year. Um, I'm a, and I'm actually friends. The guy who was their tour manager was actually a friend of mine uh, from mm. from Finland, but he got a hold of me and he's like, hey, I'm, I'm, I, uh, I'm with ministry. I can get you in. So I got to, uh, you know, go into the backstage and everything. But um, people don't understand that now that when ministry came out back then with mind is a terrible thing to taste. It was radical. I mean, now it's like kind of a shtick of like kind of, you know, metal, like, you know, rock type stuff. But when that like came out, that was so radical and so different. No one had done that before, like the, you know, the, or to that extent, you know, like KMFDM was doing the sequence, you know, sampling and sequencing the guitars and stuff like that. Um, and I, I can't remember where they were in relation to that. But when I first heard Ministry, it was like there was nothing like that going on at the time. It was like just a completely, mind-blowing experience to to hear that well i i you know if we're going to be talking about wax tracks um the entire catalog of uh that record label was um so far out not over out of the mainstream that's granted but anything was that was going on under any undercurrent all of the punk, all of the uh, death rock, and I'm going to call it death rock, not goth, because that's just not giving it to justice. Sure. Uh, Fair enough. What we, had, we had Dead Boys. We had uh, later Lords of a New Church. We had, um, um, you know, Bauhaus Sisters. The whole Vox track sound was completely different. Mm-hmm. They brought in synthesizers. They brought in, uh, they started, what they did to my ear is that they brought a concept of the sound that is maybe harsh, but there was a sound that is pleasing to the ear. It was ear candy. Mm-hmm. They sizes the sound, they shaped it in such a way whether it's harsh or not, it was just an ear candy. Mm-hmm. And uh, before that, uh, we were, uh, and I was also one of those um, snobs who were going, well, yeah, if it's not a natural analog sound, it's shit. But these guys said, well, throw this concept out of the window. It doesn't mean matter how I create the sound as long as it sounds good. Mm-hmm. And they start making music with that sound. Now, what happened out of it later, at least, it doesn't matter. To me, that's how I took it. That's how I absorb it. That's what made me think the way I think now. Mm-hmm. And does a lot of that go into, a lot of that go back into, like, what you create? Absolutely. So now I'm thinking more of 
the quality of impact that sound has on the ear and the psyche. So when I write music, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I write, a, I draw a picture. I want for, for somebody who is listening it, see a painting with the sound. And whatever that painting is, that should be visual, mm-hmm. in, internally. I, know, I, I, I don't know if it makes much sense, but this is kind of the goal that I'm trying to, to achieve. And, um, you know, it's not always easy to do. With, and nowadays where the standard, industry standard, everything over-compressed, everything flat, so, uh, yeah, I do the best uh, uh, that I can. That means to me that sometimes I have to thin out the song to let the individual voices come through. In other words, instrument is a voice. I don't care if it's a drum or if it's a singer, it's all a voice. It's got to come through. Now, you make a really good point uh, the, about um, dynamics. Um, that, that that's something that's being lost in like modern music. It's like the and, and I don't know if this has to do with the mastering uh, process with things. It just gets more and more uh, intense all the time. But like dynamics are like being lost in music, especially a lot of the uh, industrial stuff that's coming out now. It's all just like the the super harsh, just like a flat line, and there's no dynamics in it. And it's like. For me, when I do stuff, and I and I'm not like doing music as 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 much as I used to, but it's like all about like trying to get the the dynamics or that that you put into it. That's like what that's that's yeah. what you know gives depth to it. To that that you know using that metaphor of like a picture, it's like the dynamics are what add depth to it, in my opinion. Right, uh, and it it has to do with. Uh... Don't forget, the music is a business, and uh, we uh, in the business is, in, is uh, supported by making money. That makes money, uh, making money has to do with the way the product is being uh, fed and digested uh, by both uh, chef and uh, audience. So uh, the audience is listening every, to everything on the iPods, iPhones, the, the low quality, you know, headphones. So to be digestible, I understand that they have to flatten the sound, they have to over uh, pump the volume so it would come through on the tingy headset and try to make it as bassy as possible. So you have, you lose all the mids. You have all the bass driving bass and, uh, and high frequency. That's just the nature of the consumption of the music now. Um, yeah, so you hear uh, the hipsters uh, going back to volume, va- va- volume, <laughs> uh, vinyl, and getting, uh, you know, this all turntables. Uh, but that in itself is not an answer too, because I grew up in vinyl. And I know after two, three plays, it's a trash. It's a mm-hmm. garbage. So, but, I'm, uh, but I believe, it's my belief, whatever, I, I agree, disagree with me, I don't care. Uh, you're right. It's a free country for now. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, digital technology is advanced enough to still allow for a full dynamic range 
are damn near close to an analog dynamic range, mm-hmm. but it's not being utilized. So why do you think that is? Why do you think it's not being utilized? I think it's because uh, still we have uh, the industry standards, quote-unquote, and uh, even uh, new bands, even the bands who, that do not make money from this, and uh, this is their, you know, fork of love, kind of like for me, um, we still have to keep in mind that my, uh, let's say, our song, uh, the Western, going to be played right after some other song from that's been mixed differently. So you have to be somewhere near the volume range. You cannot have this big drop. Yeah. So keeping that in mind, you have to kind of lock in step with the rest of the industry. Yeah, you know, you want you want any DJ to be like, oh, yeah, this is going to be really easy for me to mix into my set. So Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, you want it to make sense to 133, 145 BPM at a certain dB volume, so it can be, you know, fed right into the mix without much of the effort. Yeah, so, using the tractor. Yeah. <laughs> so, have you uh, read the manual, the KLF manual? What is it? <laughs> you know that band. You know that band, the KLF. I don't think so. <laughs> KLF. They were like a techno band, like in the late '80s, early '90s. They did uh, what, Justified, Justified, and Ancient. I know you've heard them because you've been. Oh going, yeah, yeah, I yeah. heard that though. Yeah, yeah. So they uh, wrote this book called um, it's, it's called the KLF Manual, and you can find it online. You can go search for it online and find like downloads of it. But it's like how to have a, a UK top ten hit in 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 five easy lessons or something. And they talk about all these things. They talk about I, I thought about it because you mentioned BPM, right? You're doing electronic music and you're trying to get mixed by DJs. BPM is always a big deal, right? Like what what right. what, what BPMs right. are we going to work at? And they talk about how, like, uh, like you know, 120, why 120 is the best BPM for this. And then, I mean, basically all these different, like, electronic subgenres are pretty much defined by, you know, the BPM. BPM. You get into, right. like, um, you know, you get up to, like, you start getting into, like, EBM and stuff like that. It starts to get up to, like, 140 and people start dancing a little bit more aggressively. And then you get to, right. like like, 150 or so. And that's about as fast as you can go and, and still dance and look cool. Beyond that, it just becomes like, you know, what is like, like drum and bass or, or something. Yeah, it just becomes like crazy, you know, people like spazzing out and stuff. But, um, but it's, 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 it's interesting. Yeah, check out the manual sometime. They get into all this stuff and they talk about like the, the golden rules. The golden rules of like song composition, you know, like it needs to be this long. You've got to have a verse, you know. Two, you know, three verses and 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 you know, or at least two verses and at least two choruses, and you know, you have to have a breakdown in the middle and all this stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. For 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 that period, uh, forty hit absolutely. But uh, I have discovered that um, I, I mentioned earlier since since wave uh, recently, and um, some of their bands are you know a lot of it is crap. 
but uh, a lot, some of it is pretty good. Like there's a band Perturbator that I went to see a, a couple uh, weeks ago. They were in Chicago. Um, incredible uh, composition, incredible arrangement. No verses, no courses, stops, whatever you wanted to stop. You know, just there. Um, and uh, they played with Ghost, and, um, and, uh, which is another band. And from what I hear, these guys, their roots is like heavy, death metal, something like that. And it's incredible how they come from this and doing that. Now, the melody line, the, the whole arrangement of the structure of the song, it must be there. I, I, I can't tell you <laughs> where uh-huh. we're short. But there is another band, uh, Carpenter Brood, that is amazing. I think that's, this is a state band. And so check it out. Check these guys out. Put it uh, in your rotation. It's just something interesting to, uh, to listen to something new. Right. That is out there. But, but you're right. There's definitely certain rules in this genre you have to obey or you would not be played. Right. Not get into rotation, you know. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, Biocarp, uh, never, followed any of these rules, never wanted to be in uh, any, well, we'd love to be in any rotation, but it's not the goal of the song. The the goal is to make uh, good sounding music. Uh And hopefully somebody will, hopefully the music will find uh, the, the audience. No, that's that's good. That was like one of my questions. I was going to ask, what's the goal um, of your music, and 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 you just answered that. Um, and and I think that's a very that's a very um, that's very noble, you know, um, to to create music in that way. And I always kind of like was in that um, that strata of of music. Also, like I could never really commit myself to like making stuff that I you know I knew would be consumable by the masses i always just wanted to say you know like fuck that i i'm okay like occupying this area kind of in the underground somewhat where i have like some freedom to do things and you know just create something that that i'm happy with you know oh absolutely that's exactly what i was thinking i wanted to create something that i want to hear uh-huh if i if i can't listen to it I don't want to. I would. I don't want to release it. So, what is your what is your uh, process then for like creating music? Do you uh, you do 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 you program on devices or how do you get your inspiration? How do you put it all together usually? What's a typical like song construction process for you? You know, it it, it hasn't changed. Come to think of it, since uh, I switched from analog devices to uh, digital. It's still the same. Um, I just um, usually I just start with playing something. Um, I use a controller. I trigger the sound, and and just the sound itself start make start to gain the life of its own, and uh, you know it, it, it forms into something. 
a lot of times it forms into the you know quasimodo, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's more uh, more it's something really beautiful. And you know, I may release a Quasimodo as well because Quasimodo has its own merits, or beautiful stuff has its own merits. But you know, it, 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 I let the things create themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't come to creating something um, uh, with a certain preconditions. Uh, I may have a conceptual idea. I want to have a fat song. Or I want to have a lo- uh, slow song, but nothing more than that. And so you you start out then. Well, you said you use like a controller to like run some synths or something, and then you're just like kind of yeah. like playing with riffs and stuff and find something that sounds yeah. good. And you're like, oh, that sounds good. And then what do you? Yeah. Do, then do you add beats to it there? <laughs> yeah, I, I uh, yeah, I will um, uh, add. As I get uh, some idea of the melody line or a concept, then uh, the beats kind of fall into place themselves. Beats, uh, because, you know, one of another things that I learned, that bass drum, bass guitar, rhythm guitar, uh, or whatever its rhythm is, and um, it, it's all got locked in with each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, then... But they all support the lead melody, whatever that melody may be. So once you have an idea of the melody, then rhythm section somehow just you know yeah. creates by itself. Yeah. So then, what is your uh, your lyric process then? How do you come up with lyrics? Uh, this is probably the hardest thing, and actually, uh, me and. Well, his name is Ronnie from uh, from Simon. I was asking Ronnie. him, so how do, how, how do you come up with lyrics? And he, he says, this is like, that's a nightmare. I can write melodies, no problem. I can write a song, but lyrics, it's just... So um, lately, uh, as more and more practice I get, um, I um, it starts to get a little easier, like right now I'm working on the next album and I have the, all of the music down, conceptually organized, uh, all of the lyrics down, and it was really quick process for some reason, unlike anything previous. But again, the music dictates what lyrics going to be about. Because, I, as I said, I, I create the picture, I looked at the picture, and then I try to put this picture into words. So for me, music comes towards lyrics later. Yeah, now, I I, uh, I agree with a lot of that. I think lyrics is like kind of the hardest part when you got a really good, you can have a really good groove and a really good song coming together, and I can I can tell oh this part's going to be the chorus, this is going to be the verse. But then, like, figuring out, like, words to say on it. And then especially after you've, like, been doing this for, like, a decade or so, more than that, mm-hmm. you start going, God, am I just, like, writing the same thing over and over again? <laughs> well, uh, you know, one thing, a long time ago, I, I took this English 101. And the first time I took it, I failed. And I so I've retaken it, and I talked to my... 
second teacher and said, why did you fail? And I said, well, I, I wrote this composition and teacher accused me of plagiarism. I took a Russian joke, I translated it into the story in English and blew it out. <laughs> um, it's turned out to be an episode of the Twilight Zone. Okay. Well, seriously, I never seen Twilight Zone. Wow. My teacher, teacher planned me because she saw it. Wow. <laughs> so my second teacher told me, okay, uh, the way to avoid it is easy. Just write about your own experience. Uh-huh. So, um, applying this to the song, so when I see the picture, I look at it and I think, how does it apply to my experiences? What I feel now, what I felt someplace different in time, you know, and just, you know, talk about that. I don't have to have many words. Just if, well, in fact, I, I don't have many words. <laughs> but I uh, just use these words to describe what I see inside my mind. Uh-huh. Sometimes it's, a, it's coherent, I'm sure. Sometimes it's not, but that's, that's how I approach it. So do you ever feel then, um, do you ever worry that you're, you're, you're uh, being too personal? Like your lyrics are going to be too personal? Like does that concern you ever or you're just like oh, fuck it who cares what people think well first of all who cares the, who, what people think second <laughs> of all is nobody knows me so what whatever i write to them it's so foreign and strange uh, if they find some rings that uh, kind of like would sound familiar to them it's just connection of experiences right no that's awesome well, so um, so then you work with um, other people in the band? Yeah, uh, and um, there was quite a few people. Well, uh, I think Alay Guns had more people going through their band than mine, but yeah, there was quite a few people uh, that I worked uh, uh, in uh, at different times through, through the years. So do you have a uh, like like what kind of instrumentation do you include with it? Uh, so I mean you, you you probably from what the way you're describing from what I've heard I'm I'm imagining you do most of the programming and and backing tracks is is you, you do that and you're doing the vocals. So then do you bring in other people to like add keyboards or guitars or or what? Exactly, exactly. I'm very uh, DIY focused. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Um, well. Uh, Probably comes uh, because um, I come from the Soviet Union, actually Ukraine, not uh, uh, Russia, since it's all split up. But back then, in the in the seventies, eighties, it was all Russia, <laughs> no matter where you're from. But um, so I'm very focused on being self-reliant. Mm -hmm. But but that does not mean that uh, you. Uh, I want. I don't want to exclude other people. Actually, I do want to include other people, but it's just by the nature of things. Uh, life uh, is strange, and it may take my partners into different directions. So yeah. I have to be like. So um, whenever I can, and whenever I meet somebody who is interesting, and I think we can bring in some additional element to already creative music, I do so. So it could be whoever, drummer, 
bassist, guitar player, um, keyboard player, combination of a, uh, of such thing. It's always welcome. As long as it works, works with a mix, um, sounds good. We're having fun. That's all. That is really important. So you're you're guitar friendly then. You you will allow guitars in to mix in with the music. Yes, absolutely. It, it is not the easiest music for a guitar player to play with mm-hmm. uh, because um, you have to find your sweet spot within the mix because when you have a keyboard rich music, you have a lot of mids, you have a lot of highs, So you uh, and since guitar and keyboards kind of operate in the same area, they have to find that that sweet spot where it is logical for them to be. Right, where they're not so they're not competing. Where they're not competing for the same frequency. Right, right. I, uh, th- there was a who was it? I think it was uh, the guy from Gothical Gothicals. Uh, Brian, I believe his name. He was still, he explained it to me one time. I was asking him about his process. How does he make uh, his songs? Because for me, it was one of the hardest things. Was and he was saying, uh, think of the sound frequency at any time being a glass, and you filling it with water, always liquid. You put a bass in there, you put a drum in there, it takes some room. So whatever is left, is you're using for uh, your keyboards, for your high frequencies. So you're filling the glass. At some point, the glass is full. You cannot put anything more to it. Uh-huh. So the same thing here. So I, I try to leave enough room for other people to come in and add some of their own stuff. Right. And... That is not something that I came to right away. That's something that I had to develop. Uh-huh. Learning process. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, uh, right now I'm working with a guy. Uh, he's a guitar player. His name is Adam. He's extremely talented individual. He has excellent ear and he just mixes his guitar wonderfully. I just can't wait for people to hear uh, what he does uh, within the concept of Biocard. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I, I, I can't wait to hear that. So, um, you mentioned, uh, so you mentioned the Soviet Union. So let's talk about that. Uh-huh. So you, came, you came from the Soviet Union. When, 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 did you, uh, when did you come to America? Well, I came to America in 1979. Okay. Uh, actually, I remember the date. I think everybody who comes to America to become American, uh, like myself, would tell you to the day, if not an hour, when they first stepped on U.S. soil. For me, that was September 5th. September 5th? Yep. Uh-huh. Uh, that's my like second birthday. <laughs> wow! So, what was it like? How did you feel? Uh, hmm. The feeling is 
almost indescribable. Uh, it's like, uh, yeah, like going through the birth canal, uh, coming through that end, and taking a breath of fresh air and saying, uh, and starting a new life. And uh, you can't really, it's like, uh, you can't really describe it. It's like people who come from war. You, they don't talk about the war to anybody else who, other than the people who've been there. Mm-hmm. So, because nobody will understand. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that, uh, you know, some refugees, I, I, I didn't immigrate. I was a refugee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure that the refugees from Venezuela would understand me or from Vietnam or mm-hmm. from, uh, Red China, you mm-hmm. know, uh, People who were, uh, who, uh, in, you know, like lived in a giant concentration camp, came out from the concentration camp and learned for the first time how it feels to be a human being mm-hmm. instead of an animal. So that's, you know, that's the feeling. <laughs> Wow, that's 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 really amazing. I think a lot of people who've like always lived in America just can't can't imagine um, imagine what that is like. Um, so, what was I mean? Can you talk about what what it was like living in the Soviet Union and what made you want to like come to America? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's. Uh, it's not easy, obviously, to describe it, as I said before. So imagine, okay, here's something. Okay. Let me give you a parallel, or hyperbola, or whatever you call it. You go to work, right? What May I ask you what industry you're in? What is what? What's your... What's your industry? What do you work as? Uh, let's say healthcare IT. Very good. Healthcare IT. Okay. So let's, let's take a healthcare. I used to work there. Let's take IT. I, I, I work there too. So you go to work and there are so certain topics you can talk about, certain topics you cannot talk about. You cannot say to anybody what you think about them. You cannot say what you think about uh, your boss or the policies at work, even if these thoughts are very big. You have to constantly keep in check the subject matter, who you talk, how you talk, how you address them, how they want to be addressed. So your intent. Half of your time at work, you spend thinking what my interactions should be mm-hmm. with other people in such a way that I can still keep my job. So the, the risk that you are running, if you are making a mistake, you lose a job. Mm-hmm. The, somebody who is living in totalitarian state or a state which have a centralized government that tells you what is right for you to say, to feel, to think, 
what is wrong, your punishment is a lot more severe than losing your job. You may lose your wife, a life, you may uh, lose your home, you may lose your livelihood, well, that's the job, but uh, you, unlike here, you will never gain it. Mm-hmm. You, will find, you will have to find some other means of supporting yourself than your chosen profession because you're going to be a uh, ball. Uh, you could even lose uh, the privilege of living in the city where you were born or where you're living. Mm-hmm. Consequences are different. When you have a central committee that make decisions for what are the norms, there is no room to argue with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, when I came here, uh, there was no such a rules. You had only two rules. You don't talk about uh, politics. Uh-huh. You don't talk about religion. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you don't tell your salary. That's it. Everything yeah. else is open. Yeah. You can discuss openly any topic. Uh, things are changing, so now <laughs> you cannot talk about many more things yeah. besides uh, <laughs> religion, politics, and your salary. Uh, it kind of um, reminds me of uh, very familiar <laughs> life that I used to live back in the Soviet Union. So that's interesting. So I was going to ask, um, uh, I, are you familiar with uh, Solzhenitsyn and the uh, Gulag, Gulag Archipelago? Yeah, that book. I, my, father, my father met Solzhenitsyn when he was a young man. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So is that? Do you feel that that book is like uh, that? What he says is like fairly accurate. Uh, let me put it to you this way: in uh, Russia, contemporaries and people who know Solzhenitsyn actually don't have a high opinion of him. Uh-huh. For uh, and I'm not answering your question directly, but I'll get there. Okay. Um, because uh, he was actually uh, accused of working with the camp um, management. Mm. So he he uh, uh, got himself sweeter position. He was working in the kitchen. Uh-huh. And he got himself what they call a children's term. Uh-huh. He got, I think, 10 or 15 years in the, in the Russian war camps, where serious terms were 20, 25 years. Yeah. So, though what, you, what he wrote was um, close to the reality, reality was much, much worse. Ah. Uh. Yeah. And so, but, but I mean, that's all you can do though in that kind of situation though, right? I mean, if you're, if you're, if your reality is I'm going to the work camps, I'm going to the gulag, really your only option is to try and, and kiss ass. I think that's one of his points is that the only thing you can do is like give them everything you have and hope that maybe you can get a sweeter position because there's no other hope, you know, there's no other possibility. Well, from that perspective, uh, uh, from that perspective, you're right. You cannot fault the guy for trying to survive. But, um, you know, you, we shouldn't paint him as a hero either. Mm-hmm. 
because um, yeah, uh, yes, uh, a lot of people that he in his books are the heroes, and it's great that he brought it this dark chapter of the Soviet reality out to the light of the view of general public. That is, that is in itself a great accomplishment, but not for him. It's for, for yeah. people around him. Right. It's great that he noted it because there is no other source of information that we yeah. have. Yeah, I look at that. That's kind of like um, like Edward Snowden uh, in in more recent times, right? Because if Snowden hadn't come out and done all that stuff, none of us would know anything about the NSA right now. Everyone would think, oh yeah, well the government they probably like you know spy a little bit, but from what he came out and 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 said with all the NSA spying and everything, I mean. We wouldn't know. No one would know about it if he hadn't done that. And I kind of feel like Solzhenitsyn is a similar kind of thing. It's like people wouldn't know anything about it because it, the whole gulag thing would just be like covered up, you know. Well, this is an interesting point, uh, and um, let me bring up my point of view on this. We've seen the movies like Enemy of the State. We've seen the movies. Um, uh, uh, what was that movie with Mel Gibson when he was uh, uh, he was uh, brainwashed to do assassination? There is a ton oh, of yeah. movies that we that there are there that show us that there is a government under dark underside. Uh-huh. That there is many organizations that spy uh, on us, like creating Manchurian candidate. Yeah, Manchurian candidate. Uh, that's, that's another one. Uh, whether it's, I mean, who says that the, no, only China can created Manchurian candidate. Why do we assume that not every country has the same program like Jason Borg? Uh-huh. Or Borg. Borg. Yeah. And why do we think that this is a fantasy? Why do we not give it a credence that this is actually a reality. Mm-hmm. Why do we know them to come out and tell us, yes, this is really happening? And are we living in denial? Mm-hmm. We think that the Russians or Chinese are bad guys and nobody else is doing it? Mm-hmm. Everybody is doing it. Yeah. So if maybe because I lived in Soviet Russia, I assume that this is done. Right. I'm not living under assumption. No, no, nobody's, uh, nobody's just tracking my actions. If I'm going to say something subversive, it's not going to be noticed anywhere. We know that the FBI have arrested people who were uh, trying to assassinate uh, uh, Obama or threatened to assassinate Obama or some other president, even uh, Trump. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they catch them, sometimes they don't. But these things are not just comes up just like, oh, by accident, we found these people with a bunch of grenades. They must be try- they must be listening, they must be watching. So these these surprises and revelations to me a little I don't know, not surprising. Right. I'm surprised that people surprised that these uh, that these things are going on. So. 
I, I'm not super surprised either, but um, I have this hope that like or that everyone else will will be surprised and kind of like wake up from it, you know, um, and and maybe that's maybe that's uh, idealistic on 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 my behalf. But I'm I'm I'm, I'm disappointed. Let me say I'm disappointed that um, something like Snowden happened and it came and went and nothing has really like changed from it, you know. Like, uh, like right after like nine eleven. Here's the other thing that bothers me is like right after nine eleven, all this t- they they use this as a, an excuse to create all this new uh, security screening in airports with like the TSA and stuff, and everyone was concerned about the body body scanning devices that they use now. Um, and I mean, it was a big deal in the media, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, this is totally a violation of privacy." But then what happened? Well, nothing happened. And the devices are still there and we're still getting screened when we walk through it and we just, you know, have to have to go along with it. Um, so I find it well, disappointing. <laughs> I understand. But to me, uh, I, I, that's not the disappointment. To me, uh, we can, I, I, would, I would argue about methodology and we can, I, I, I'm disappointed in the methodology. I'm not disappointed in the fact that there are people that uh, spy on other people. The FBI does not uh, investigate its spies. You know, call it whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Uh, And spying is not really spying, it's doing research. Right. You know, so yes, there's organizations uh, always been, always been. I'm talking about always going to ancient Greeks or ancient Romans, ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, they had the security services back then. It always existed. Um, since he talking about it in his art of war, um, you, all of the books talk about the necessity, necessity of knowing information about the people who could be, could possess uh, could potentially be a threat to a state or to a society. So that intelligence work does not bother me. But what bothers me is, uh, and what we can actually discuss, is the methodology. For example, look at Israelis. They've been living for 70 years in a state of war. Uh, They don't have the same body scans as we do. Their methodology of screening people is completely different. It's more personal. It's more talking to you, understanding, spending a few minutes, uh, understanding what makes you tick. And um, unlike us, well, knock on wood, they don't don't have the same rate of incidents. Well, they do have incidents on the process, but, you know, how do you prevent that? But, uh, but so we can talk about methodology, but the fact that people are, you know, collecting information, research on other people, that's always happened. We should expect it. We should not be surprised. And I'm sure it's been around in 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. We just didn't notice it. So what is the key thing, though? What is the key thing that changes 
that takes the methodology to a new level? What what takes because like so so we've got like decreasing uh decreasing uh freedoms in America right now. Like like you said before, we have to be more care- there's less things there's more things you can't talk about now in America. There's an increasing number of things that you have to watch. So what 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 changes it to where all of a sudden you have the Soviet Union and gulags and stuff like that? What 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 is the de- is there a specific thing? Well, a specific yeah, principle? Well, yeah, I I I tell you what I, I the difference if you look at all of the countries where freedoms have, have been curtailed and how freedoms are curtailed. It's going from the multi-party system to a one-party system. So when everybody decides that uh, this is a social norm and if we have multi-party system but everybody decides that this is a social norm and everything outside of it is not uh-huh. a social norm, uh-huh. that is the kind of tailing of your freedoms. Mm-hmm. And if you were lucky enough to experience uh, or being free to do and things that now all of a sudden have become outside of the social norm, now you feel that your freedom's being curtailed. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll look at Russia, one-party system, China, Venezuela, so forth, Vietnam, one party system. When I was here well, back in the 80s, uh, there was two party systems. They work with each other, they uh, talk to each other, they uh, all identify themselves as Americans. Now you see that those parties no longer working with each other. Everybody is working, uh, you know, voting along the party lines. Now it becomes, if not with us, you against us. Mm-hmm. And uh, this whole thing that used to bind us, uh, that we will call ourselves Americans, uh, now becomes in question. I mean, uh, people not are not seem to be as proud to be Americans as they used to be. Mm-hmm. I remember coming, I was in Italy before I got <laughs> there. Um, we were vetted going through the process, I'm sure, in Italy. And I was looking at, America, uh, at Italian kids proudly wearing Captain America's shirt with the, this red, white, and blue shield of Captain America. <laughs> you know... And uh, uh, come uh, come to America, everybody, you know, like you know, you know, Fourth of July, awesome. Uh, but now it's not not the same. I don't see kids uh, running around with Captain America shirts. Uh, you know, Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman also had red, white, and blue. Mm-hmm. I don't. See for being proud of being uh, who they are or proud of their country. And that's just sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, because I'm still proud to be American. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too, man. And, uh, I mean, you're right. 
things have like changed. So, I mean, the the Republican Democrat thing is just, uh, I, I mean, back in the day, no, uh, people who are Republicans and Democrats like talked and, and, uh, associated with each other. But now there's a real, like, uh, there's a real divide of like, if someone's like on, on the other side of the, of the fence, it's like, not only can you not talk to them, but many people will actively try to silence, you know, silence each other or, or shun each other, um, and, and be very, very selective about it. And it's, it's, it's very disturbing because it seems like what's being set up, the inevitable result of this is like one of the parties is going to triumph over the other one and just completely obliterate the other one. Um, and then we'll have a one party system and, you know, then we'll, that's where we'll be. Yeah. That's where we're going to be in 1994. You know, I, I really, the fact that, you know, we are musicians in our own right, and we're also uh, professionals, uh, IT background. And um, honestly, when I hear musicians or artists talking about politics, they have a certain um, distaste to it because I feel that um, they are trying to pass what they want to see for what it should be. Um without uh, having really some kind of background to do it for it. And by background, I'm talking about not necessarily being a scientist or professionals of that field, but please bring back the historical facts of where this type of a behavior leads. Mm-hmm. But um, live, me living through that, I, I'm a live example of what one party system lacking in staff with uh, and uh, designing social norms uh, will lead to mm-hmm. and from my experience uh, I, I just told somebody you know why I came here and I and the reason I wanted to come to America that I was kind of like an anarchist in terms of, uh, in a classic term, is that, you know, everybody should be allowed to do their own thing and nobody should be prevented of it to, to, uh, from doing whatever makes them happy, uh, whatever makes them, um, you know, put the bread on their table to the point that it negatively affects somebody else at that point this behavior had be should be curtailed because your uh, happiness should not become my unhappiness right but when you have the ministry of happiness <laughs> that decides you know that all animals are born to be equal mm-hmm. except some of them more equal than others and it's a re- reference to an animal farm yeah I, I, now, I got it. Yep. <laughs> well, just in case somebody didn't read that on a farm, because I'm because I'm I'm running into the people who haven't read these kind of best basics, and they have a college degree. Mm-hmm. Um, that becomes a problem, and uh, that when it becomes a problem to people to animals that are not quite as equal as others, these animals gonna end up doing something. Mm-hmm. And that's something may 
be fair and pleasant. Because uh, really, I have not met anybody in America who have, unless it's a veteran, who have seen uh, carnage of ultimate violence. And that's not pretty. So if we're going to shut each other up and we're going to dismiss the opinion of people, our neighbors, this is what we're, where we're going to end up. Uh, within our lifetime, we saw what happened in the fall of Russia, how all those different republics started fighting each other based on the, you know, the ethnic identity or uh, trying to buy the bigger piece of the pie. And it's not pretty. Uh-huh. We luckily have not experienced anything like that on our soil, and I hope we will ne- never will. But uh, I think, uh, and, and I'm surprised that people with their college degree do not think about these things. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think another problem in in America is that, well, it's probably problems everywhere, is that the the school system, the public school system, is basically uh, is, is largely controlled by one of the parties, and so there's sort of a bias going on in the public school system, and then the university system suffers a similar sort of like influence because they're so dependent on um, on government loans um, and 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 grants that they end up becoming dependent on what's coming from uh, coming from the government also. So there's a a dumbing down of any sort of uh, anything any any sort of subversiveness against the government in general, and rather uh, redirected towards uh, the opposing party um, and things like I mean because what when I went to high school we read Lord of the Flies uh, we had to read Animal Farm um, you know and some books like this and. I don't think that's like really going on. I mean, like you said, there's lots of people who have gone through the entire education system and they haven't read any any books like this. They haven't they're they're not familiar with any of these ideas. Um and and it's disturbing because when you get to the point where the majority of the population is just not aware of any of this and they just don't believe, you know, they don't think things are really, you know, that really that bad in 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 China or that bad in North Korea then that's not a good situation. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you, uh, well, <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, education controls by one party, but I, uh, but I can argue with you that the party that controls it is not either of the parties in charge in Congress. Uh-huh. But um, um, I can tell you from uh, Soviet declination, the way it works was uh, pretty simple. Um, but it is ingenious. So you take Marx, and if you really, it's a long discussion, I don't know if we have time for it, but if you look at Marx and Darwin, they came out at the same time. The time of um, Victorian era, post, uh, you know, that repression, where enlightenment uh, came through, we discovered electricity, where, uh, as humans, 
came to idea that the science can explain everything mm -hmm. that is surrounding us. Darwinism, evolution, mm -hmm. um, life itself. And Marx, um, he said, you know, I can put the scientific basis to the social contract in humanity. Mm -hmm. And based on my theories, the evolution of humans will lead to the a utopian society called communism, where we have a social contracts with each other, and these are the norms. And the people who do not live by these norms have no part within our society. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense that, yes, if we all live by the same rules and helping each other, promoting each other's welfare, taking from everybody by their talent and giving them by their needs, that would be awesome society. But as we see this idea being implemented, we notice one key thing, that there is a lot of people who do not fit in this, this form. What to do with those people? In Germany, Nazi Germany, Soviet Union, and many other countries who adopted this concept, these people were discarded in a concentration camp, in a gulag, in the death camps. Uh, uh, you know, millions upon millions were executed because they had no place in the society. This is the consequences of standardizing and may of putting the science behind the human psyche and human behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and we see this over and over again. But it's easy to sell. You take a young uh, mind who's saying that I see a lot of injustice in the world. I see things that are not unfair. I people, see people are repressed based on their choices they make or based on their desires. So to, we need to get rid of the oppressors, right? Mm -hmm. So they take, so you, you show them that, yes, there is a science behind this. It's called a social science. And these are the things that we need to implement. They would eagerly follow it. And that's how you sell a generation of people and many generations on the idea of a standardization. Mm -hmm. And you have to think alike, you have to dress alike, dress alike, you have to sing alike, you have to salute alike, you have to walk alike. And I, I, I think I'm painting a rather vivid and familiar picture. Yeah. No, absolutely. So um, I want to ask, so when you came from the Soviet Union... Like, how did that happen? How did you, how did you do that? How did you actually accomplish that? Did you, what were, what were the conditions? Um, is that okay? Uh, can I ask that? Yeah. I just thinking about, you know, time. <laughs> oh, okay. uh, I mean, the people might get bored with it, but basically, uh, my, uh, I came to the point that I, uh, just could not uh, see myself walking lock and step with the rest of the society, and I needed a way out. 
And then my way out was uh, that uh, there was an agreement between um, Israel, uh, well, uh, Israeli interest uh, uh, was represented by U.S. and Soviet Union, I believe it was part of the SALT uh, one uh, round of negotiations uh, aimed to reduce tensions uh, uh, between Soviet Union and the United States in the form of reduction of a number of uh, missiles and nuclear weapons. And um, I mean, this talks, there was a conversation about reuniting families separated by World War II. So uh, Soviet Union agreed to let um, ethnic Germans, uh, Russians, and Jews that had families, that's major groups uh, outside of the Soviet Union, to uh, reunite or leave Soviet Union to go uh, reunite with them. And um, I took an opportunity uh, because we had a, uh, I had a found a family outside of the Soviet Union to apply for papers uh, immediately. Well. So I went to my parents and I said, I'm doing this. And my parents told me, well, funniest thing that uh, we're doing the same thing. We just didn't know how to approach you. Uh, and I said, that was funny because parents and children cannot talk. Wow. If, I, 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 they, if they tell me something and I'm against it, I can turn them in. Right. You to can the turn government. them in. Yeah. Wow. And they could turn me in too. So we only talk, so within the family, you don't talk unless you're completely sure and this is, that this is going to be safe or you have absolutely no choice and you have to. That is an excellent so, example of how totalitarianism, how socialism destroys the family. It always like creeps in and it destroys the family somehow. Right. Well, maybe that's why I'm a suspicious uh, person that I am. And I'm assuming that everybody is watching. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, so we talked to each other. And I was, at that point, I was 17. I think I was just turned 17. Uh-huh. And, um, well, mind you, uh, back in those days and outside of the United States, uh, people grow up a lot faster. <laughs> yeah. By the time age of 16, I was a full form adult, smoking, drinking, everything was fine. I was drinking since I was nine, mm-hmm. maybe even early. <laughs> uh, but um, so that was not a big allure to me, you know, that taboo drinking. Uh, right. No, never thought of that. Uh, um, but um, so we, they said, we're doing the same thing. I said, well, let's do it together. So we did it together. And um, uh, we, um, my parents lost their work. Uh, we, I, luckily, they didn't kick us out of, uh, out of our apartment. I was kicked out of firm school. Um, many of uh, my peers had a walk of shame. They walked them in front of the entire school and said, he's a traitor to the Soviet uh, um Ideology. He's going to be a capitalist pig. Wow. Who you? <laughs> so, uh, I, luckily, I, I never had to go through that, but many people did. I mean, my my living in Russia was pretty smooth compared to others. Wow. So, and it took a year 
to file papers, get permission. I had to pay Soviet Russia to for them to take away my Soviet citizenship. Wow. So when I left the uh, Soviet Union, I was man without a company. Wow. And when they, uh, and when we were in Italy, um, you know, and we had to sign the papers saying that in the case of, if needed, I will defend the uh, United States in part of the U.S. military, whatever I have to do against any uh, foreign enemies, foreign or domestic. So, you know, that was, had to do this uh, entire oath before even getting to the United States, before green cards, before anything. Wow. So, uh, it was pretty proud moment. So, when I got here, I think I was either just turned 18, yeah, or, yeah, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe I was 18 and a half, something. Yeah, I was 18 and a half. Um, and uh, yeah, it, uh, that's why I can remember my second birth and the air tasted different. Wow. <laughs> I know it sounds really, you know, rah, 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 but seriously, when, uh, try, I tell you what, you want to see something comparable? Okay, try not to eat meat for a week uh-huh. or don't drink for a week and then have your first drink. Uh-huh. And see how it feels. And see how it feels. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. That's pretty. That's pretty, ra- that's a pretty radical suggestion. Not drinking for a week. I don't know. I'll have to think about that. But maybe I'll try that. Someday. It's only. A week. It's only seven days. <laughs> I could have asked for a month. <laughs> yeah, you are a radical. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. So well, that was it. So I'm glad. I'm glad you made it. I'm glad you made it over here. It's awesome. Oh, here's a here's a question I wanted to ask you. Is this true? I've heard this stated before. Like someone said um, that CNN, CNN is becoming like uh, like Pravda, right? Like a propaganda. Like Pravda is like the newspaper in the Soviet Union, right? Right. Um, CNN is becoming like Pravda. And then someone who was like from Russia said. It's it's not like Pravda because in Soviet Union, people knew Pravda was lying and they didn't believe it. CNN though, people believe people believe it. People buy everything off of it, you know. Well, people in Soviet Union, a lot of them believed that Pravda was uh, uh, truth too. Okay. Uh, so there were two papers. There was a Pravda, which means truth, and Izvestia, which means news. Pravda didn't have the truth. Izvestia didn't have no news. <laughs> <laughs> so they're named the opposite. So it's just like 1984, like the Ministry of Love or whatever, or the Ministry of Truth. It's named for actually the opposite of what it is. <laughs> yeah, pre- pretty much. But I, I think uh, to me, when I'm looking at the, our conventional news channels, and um, CNN is not only one uh, to be cited, CNBC and a little bit of Fox uh, sometimes. It become commercials. Mm-hmm. And commercial is whoever pays for information get the commercial time. Mm-hmm. So what you see is whoever is sponsoring that information. You're just being fed constant commercial. So uh, uh, what we did in Russia, 
uh, we were just reading everything and try to read between the lines. But I think uh, you, we still in America have access to other sources of information, and we can do our own research if we so choose to. Yeah. No, that's like really true. I mean, at least we, we do have the ability to, to dig deep. Um, if you dig a little bit, you can find out, um, get a better idea of what's going on. And, and we're lucky that we, we have the internet like uh, relatively, like probably relatively uncensored compared to what they have in, in, in Europe or, or even in Russia now. And do you think Russia, do you think it's different? Do you think it's... China, what you're thinking, they, they censor the internet. But what, uh, what I think you, you uh, what I, my day job actually is to do, uh, to do a political analysis for, oh. uh, for a financial company. Okay. It's a, uh, I'm, I'm um, like a market analyst, right? So I need to uh, evaluate the political risk within this scope of technology, but it's in the same industry. So what I do, I, I subscribe to free internet uh, sites in Europe, so a couple in Europe, few in America, few in Asia, um, Middle East, uh, and I just read the same news from all of the sources, and I compare them against each other and see what is missing. What is missing in one versus what is missing in the other, that where's the accent. Mm -hmm. And that allows me to get the general perception of what are certain feelings from each part of the world on the same news story. Mm. So uh, something like that. It, it is time-consuming, but it's not really... That time consuming, you can just skim the headlines and the first paragraph just to get right. the gist. Wow. And so you do this for like, you do this for market analysis. Yeah. So can, can you give us any good stock picks? Um, I, well, I can and I can't because really, it, it, it's all <laughs> now. If we want to talk about investment, you got to you got you got to put in the perspective your investment horizon. Some people invest for a minute, some for a day, some for a week, some for years. So it all depends. That stock pick depends on your investment horizon. Okay, so, what's so, so make how money about next? From today to tomorrow, right. that's one thing. What's going to make in the next twenty years? All right. So I'm not a day a day trader. Say I've got a five year horizon. Mm -hmm. What's good for five years right now? Uh, if you're talking about if your investment instrument is for one k, I would say between now and the election, um, uh, just broad stock market. Just broad. Yeah, just buy the dips. And uh, um, into election year, you're gonna, you should uh, uh, see the gains. In fact, you know, if you look at the, at the um, economic cycles and you look at the Republican versus Democratic presidency, you can find the uh, definite uh, up cycles in the um, 
with exceptions of 9-11. That was a big uh, slap in the face. But yeah, usually yeah. have a, a rally into the election, and then you have uh, more uh, high um, gains during the Republican versus presidencies uh, than you would uh, during the dem- Democratic presidencies. All right. Cool. And it has to do with the federal spendings and things of that nature, regulations. Yeah. Cool. So right now we're in a, in a good uh, economic cycle. We should uh, see some positive growth um, to the next election. And then and, uh, then following four years will depend who will be elected in the office. Yeah. All right, groovy. So, um, on that exciting subject, <laughs> uh, right? On that exciting note, no, it's hey, it's exciting to me. I know some of my listeners are interested in that. I have a, I have a very broad listener, very broad and diverse listenership out there. So I know some people will um, appreciate everything that we've like talked about tonight. Um, but let's talk about let's let's bring it back to the music, man. Um, we're gonna listen to a song. We're well. Western. <laughs> tell yeah. us about this. <laughs> tell us about this song. Uh, all right, all right. So, actually, that song, uh, it's it, it came like a fluke. We were on vacation, my wife and I, and uh, for some reason I was thinking of, about this melody. Um, in the movie uh, for a few dollars more do you remember uh, when uh, there was a guy gunfight and they had a watch yeah uh, at the end uh-huh. and uh, that melody was just ringing through my head and I was going like I gotta get it out wow. so uh, but I did not want it for it to be like playing the ripoff of this of this of this chain. So I was just playing on my computer with this melody, and that's where the melody for the for this uh, for the song came up, and the name and uh, the whole story was about what happened to the to uh, to the character Leaf Van Cleef in that movie. Ah, uh. so that's where the lyrics came from. All right, awesome, cool. All right, well, we're gonna cue this up. It's been awesome having you on the show, Igor. Thank you so much for all the awesome things that you bring to the world. Did we we got a? Did we do a remix before? I don't recall, but I'm definitely open for the to the idea. I have this some something. All of a sudden, I'm wondering: Did I do? I, I have this feeling I did a remix that we did. That we you sent me some stems or something, and I did a remix for something. I don't know if if this happened. It was like eight years ago or so. So yeah, let, let's dive into it because I, I can't remember. Remember what I was telling you that I can't remember. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> I know how it goes. No, they could be changing everything. They could be changing my whole room every day, and I'd wake up in the morning and I wouldn't know the difference. So I think I've seen that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. But we should hook up and do something uh, soon. Definitely. Let's do that. All right. Thank you, everybody, for joining us here for Saturnian Sessions. And this is Biocarbon 13 and Western. <laughs>